Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4,264 of the Bugle... Sorry, I've got to take this. Uh, Bugle Global Communications Incorporated. You want to speak to whom? Sorry, let me get a pen. Just say that name again. How are you spelling that? C for Charlie. So, sorry, Z for Zoot. So it's Z in this country. Okay, A, L, P, sorry, T. C again. Sorry, Z again. Yeah, M, A. Is that M or N? N, N for nonsense. Okay, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll put you through. Please hold a moment. Hello, Andy Zaltzman speaking. Yes, I am that Andy Zaltzman. Well, well, I only did that show once. Uh, h- how can I help? <laughs> Sorry, you're offering what? A service that automatically generates concise, focused beginnings to podcasts. No, I don't think we're looking at moving in that direction. <laughs> what do you mean you think the show would benefit from getting straight into the what you describe as real content? No, I don't think that is necessarily true. Well, who exactly do you mean by everyone? Well, is there really such a thing as too conceptual? Look, mate, now's not a good time. I've got to get on with the show. Look, look this has really not helped get the show going. No, no it does not prove your point. Y- you cannot speak to producer Chris said. Let me get the show started before everyone stops listening. Do what instead? Uh, it is not that kind of show. But, but th- th- thank you for your call. Uh, hello. So, sorry about that uh, uh, beginning. This is The Bugle. It's issue 4264. It's the 22nd of May 2023. And uh, I am joined this week by two guests... Again, uh, firstly, <laughs> that's that's all the introduction they need. Uh, firstly, <laughs> for the I believe officially umpteenth time on the bugle, it's Nish Kumar. Hello, Nish. Hello, Andrew. Uh, you know when you said, uh, just bear with me because I've got a really silly opening today. <laughs> yep. And a look of dread filled on the Zoom call uh, right. with concern about what something you would caveat as being very stupid would be. <laughs> I think you absolutely delivered on it, Andrew. Oh, that's good. That's good. I think you absolutely yeah. delivered on delivered on it. Um, uh, also joining us for the second time uh, on The Bugle, uh, uh, a warm welcome back to Josie Long. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming back. You, uh, you have a book coming out this week. I do. It's a book of short stories. Well, there we go. We usually do plugs at the end, but um, t- tell us. Let's do it all the way through. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> like, I'll try and work it into each of the right. news well, let's, items. Well, I mean, what is news but a collection of, of short stories, really, when you think of it in those terms? So, <laughs> I will say this has been form-breaking for The Bugle as a podcast in terms of having the plug early, but it has continued the long-standing tradition of plugging things appallingly, given that no one's mentioned the title or the oh, date yeah. the book comes out. <laughs> Luke, you've got to leave a bit of mystery. That's right, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll solve that mystery, which is, uh, and a mystery can be a short story, at the end of this, of this podcast. Um, <laughs> it will turn out that Nish did it. <laughs> it is the 22nd of May 2023. And what a day to be recording because it is today just uh, 568 years since the Wars of the Roses kicked off um, at the First Battle of St. Albans. On the 22nd of May, 1455, uh, Richard, Duke of York, 
defeated and captured Henry VI of England, who of course had become king as a baby. If you're good enough, you're old enough, as the uh, <laughs> old monarchy saying goes. And uh, the Battle of uh, St Albans was a pretty piss-poor effort, to be honest. Um, but, but it did start the Wars of the Roses, the three-decade squabble that resulted in lots of people being hacked to death in battle, including celebrity car park resident Richard, not as bad <laughs> as Shakespeare suggested the third, who was hacked to death in the manner fashionable at the time at uh, the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. It all kicked off, as I said, this day in 1455, the Battle of St Albans, a, a half-hour effort with disappointingly few people being hacked to death. Not really what the fans wanted to see from a 15th-century battle, to be honest. But things picked <laughs> up, and just six years later at the ba Battle of Towton, the hacking-to-death element of the war had become so advanced that in a 10-hour slaughter fest, an estimated 28,000 people were hacked to death in a single day of all-action, metal-clanging, flesh-splatting mayhem in Yorkshire. That, of course, is the upper end of the estimate, but... It's 2023. Let's talk about the past like we talk about the present. It was at least 28,000, if not millions. Uh, but but 28,000, <laughs> that would have been over 1% of the entire population of England killed in a single day of hand-to-hand -hand combat. You've got to admire the work rates involved in that. I just don't think our youngsters would put the effort in these days. It's uh, estimated that the battle involved over 3% of the entire population of the country. So it's the equivalent today of 2 million people meeting for a right ruck in the Sainsbury's car park in Tadcaster. So. Do you know what though? That would be a great day to like go to the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like yep. you know when there's like a World Cup final. Yeah, yeah. And you go yeah. to the garden centre or something, yeah. and it's deserted. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what? Actually, if you were interested in buying an axe, perversely, yeah. that's the best day. Right. You don't. Think no, be surely. Sold out. Sure, yeah, surely all the axe shops are sold out. Oof. And to be fair, if you run the axe shop and you're not going to the <laughs> battle, you won't get respected in the future. Yeah. Well, because you want to get some pictures of your axes being used. Uh, using <laughs> Just sat other. there. <laughs> Desperately trying to draw and paint as quickly as humanly possible. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, as always, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin. This week, a uh, patents or patents section, whichever you want to call it, uh, on uh, also linked to anniversaries. In 1849, Abraham Lincoln was issued a patent for an invention to lift boats up, making him apparently the only American president ever to hold a patent. And in 1906, the Wright brothers were given a patent for their so-called flying machine. So to commemorate these uh, historic moments, we uh, look at some of the most exciting uh, current patents pending, uh, waiting for clearance before they are unleashed on the market, including the Strop-Tech Tantrum Helmet. Uh, in today's <laughs> angry, highly strung, conflictional world, we all like to wobble out every now and again, and the patent-pending uh, Strop-Tech Tantrum Helmet is 99% soundproof, vacuum-enclosed, with extra oxygen pumped in for peak rant endurance, and is set to be the must-have Fury Tech accessory in the second half of this decade, with its one-way uh, mirrored surface to give you facial privacy whilst ranting incandescently about the universe. The Tantrum Helmet it also offers reassuring validation of any opinions expressed in your tantrum, no matter how fruitily worded or socially unacceptable, with a range of thumbs up and smiley faced emojis projected directly into your eyeballs, recommended for use uh, by inhabitants of all known inhabitable planets. And uh, also the Productivision Anti Sleep Chair, which comes with a built in wasp's nest. Uh, it's their latest uh, corporate efficiency. Uh, 
uh, aid um, patent pending on that as well, uh, which, of course, uh, previous uh, efforts have included the bladder wascelerator, which claims <laughs> to reduce the time taken for office workers to urinate by an average of 12.7 seconds per was, which could save the average office-based company up to £364 million pounds over just 4,000 years, although the warranty only lasts for two years. Uh, so that patent section... Is in the bin. Didn't Bladder Wazcelerator play for uh, the England cricket team in the early 20th century? I think it might have done, yeah. I'll, I'll check my stats. <laughs> Top story this week, comeback news. Well, we all love a bit of nostalgia, hence the popularity of vintage clothing, period dramas... 60-year-old snap rappers washing up on the beach as a metaphor for the decline of human civilization, patriotism and dressing up like a baby and paying someone to congratulate you for vomiting. But not every comeback is welcome. And it seems that Bashar al-Assad, the Damascus douchebag, the Syrian serial shithead, the Ba'athist, Ba'art shit crazy Ba'astard, the notoriously <laughs> uncivil civil warmonger and strifophile, has wheedle-wormed his way back into mainstream politics. The I'm sexy and I know it fan appeared at the Arab League summit in Saudi Arabia and even told his fellow league that he hoped his Elvis-style comeback would herald a new era of peace. Now, I know, uh, Nish and Josie, you're both massive fans of the concept of peace. Uh, <laughs> I mean, how do you feel to see uh, Bashar al-Assad s- suddenly jumping on the, the peaceful bandwagon after all these years? Well, listen, it's a multi-level disappointment. Uh, obviously, it's a disappointment to see Assad be welcomed back into the international fold, but it's a double disappointment that he didn't go full Elvis and do it in a black leather suit <laughs> with his name spelled out in red lights behind him. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to come back, come back. Yeah. <laughs> Look, can I say something that is not clever and I'm not proud of it? Yep, yep. Uh, that's when... pretty much the that's pretty much the motto of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> However, the f- say that in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've spent a lot of time listening to people make jokes about people's appearances, and often with like a middle-aged man, people will say, "Oh, they look like a thumb," or especially they'll say, "Oh, they look like a bollock," <laughs> and. Aside as the first person, when today I was looking at the photo and I was like, ah, but he really does. (laughs) Like his face. There's a photo of him looking to one side and I was like, this man is the embodiment of a ball sack from the neck up. (laughs) And I know it's not about his conduct or anything like that, but I feel like it's my moral responsibility (laughs) To point this fact out, well, and, and how much do you think that the, the fact, uh, as as you describe it, that he that he looks like a uh, a nadger, has influenced <laughs> the way he's conducted his life? I mean, is is this a you know a, a sort of rebellion against mm. against you know the the difficulty of looking like a testicle? Um, it's Kafkaesque. Yeah, <laughs> he woke up one morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting psychologically. Uh, Nish Bashar al Assad, as discussed on the Bugle uh, many years ago, was li- used to listen to "I'm Sexy" and I know it. I know that's very much your internal soundtrack whenever you walk on stage or start recording the Bugle. Um, so yeah, I I remember that story being covered on this podcast, um, and it, yeah, it was because they seized uh, some of his assets, including his iTunes purchase history, right? And that's how we fa- and that's how we found out. 
he had purchased, and I guess we have to assume listened to LMFAOs, I'm sexy and I know it. I don't know if he listened to that again to G himself up uh, before the speech, but um, it's, it's definitely worth bearing in mind. Also, weird fact about LMFAO, they are an uncle and a nephew, which I don't think ever gets that. It, it's very <laughs> That's <uncle>. illegal. <laughs> I feel retrospectively disgusted that I enjoyed that song. Yeah, it's 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 definitely very very strange. Um, he 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 addressed the uh, the summit the summit of the Arab League, uh, which was taking place in Saudi Arabia. Already a bad start. What is this? An international football tournament? Anyway, he said that the summit was a historic opportunity to address crises around the re- across the region and said he hoped it marked the beginning of a new phase of Arab action and called for peace in our region, development, prosperity instead of war and destruction. And it is a very strange thing. I guess when you start making these speeches, you've got to start with your first audience, which is yourself. So maybe this was a really profound moment of self-reflection uh, from Assad. He also said that it was important to leave internal affairs to the country's people as they were best able to manage their own affairs. Which, again, is he talking to himself? Because I'm pretty sure he wasn't too worried about foreign interference when he was allowing Vladimir Putin to arm him so he could bomb his own f***ing <laughs> people. He, he, this is he, this is a pretty extraordinary piece of, uh, I guess, historic amnesia. Uh, from the league, uh, there were various protests in Syria, and uh, of, uh, some of the protest signs said Syria cannot be represented by Assad the criminal. But listen, if, if uh, being represented by a criminal at this point in human history, that's just par for the course. <laughs> that's just absolutely par for the course. We just—it would we... feel weird not to be. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you've got to think—you know, twelve years ago, he started a civil war in his own country but now everyone's bored of it so it's fine yeah Yeah. that's how those things work (laughs) (laughs) um the emir of qatar walked out before uh big bash Mm. began his uh his speech now it feels mate Uh, we've all been there um but um (laughs) But, uh, I mean, even so, I mean, Assad returned to the international stage, or the fact that his return did not take the form of him confirming his name and home address before hearing a list of charges, yeah. that, that sits uneasily, I think, with anyone who's not a fan of state-run violence, oppression and, ge- and genocide. We, we did actually ask Bashar al-Assad to appear on the Bugle to give his side of the story, but he said he was busy. So, um, unfortunately, he, ca- he can't... Um, he can't. But, I mean, what's, I mean, what does this portend for the, the future of, the, uh, of, of Syria and the entire, entire region? Do you remember when Rangers were really corrupt yeah. and they got um, demoted to the very bottom league? Yeah. So that's what happened. I think he's like he was kicked out of the Arab League and he had to do just home fixtures. Right, work his way up through, back through the, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the And now right. okay. he's obviously worked his way back up. Right. And so people have to just ignore what happened before. It's an interesting Glasgow perspective because you, you live in Glasgow now, don't you? And you're seeing, seeing everything through the... <laughs> I do not... Oh, I live for the Rangers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I lived in Glasgow, because I'm I'm Jewish, I couldn't support either Rangers. I think I'd be part... Is Partick Thistle the Jewish club? I forget. I forget how it works. Partick Thistle's the best one because yeah. they slag off both the Queen and the Pope. <laughs> it's very retro. <laughs> The love that dared not speak its name. Um, He didn't even go the normal route. 
for rehabilitating a disgraced reputation and starting his own YouTube account. That's <laughs> we all know. That's the route. He should have been doing front-facing videos where he talked about crackpot conspiracy theories to recover from being publicly disgraced. <laughs> he should be on Joe Rogan. Yeah, he should have. He should have gone straight on Rogan. That's that's the that's the traditional route for rehabilitating your public perception right. is smoking a fat stogie with Joey Rogues. Maybe that's why he said he was too busy to come on the bugle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's another uh, it's another sad day uh, in the history of international relations. It is, but I am so eternally in awe of Syrian people and the fact that they continue after twelve years of like brutal civil war to be so kind of uh, just um, indomitable. That's a word that I only read and it's very hard to say, (laughs) but um, it is incredible. And I think about it in terms of the UK where basically we go on one temp demo once and then talk about how it failed for the rest of our lives (laughs) and about how that really turned us off politics for a generation. (laughs) I feel like that is the inspirational part. The local council puts up a bollard, we disagree with them, we just <laughs> vow never to leave the house again for the rest of our lives. But, yeah. um, but uh, it wasn't just uh, Assad speaking at the Arab League, aside from some excellent football banter between the leaders about whose uh, who's sports-washing efforts are winning most silverware, and some fun golf chat about which uh, professional golfers are particularly enjoying the uh, war in Yemen. The league also hosted <laughs> a Ukraine leader, Vladimir Zelensky, and Zelensky accused Arab leaders and other leaders around the world of turning a blind eye to Russia's invasion and human rights atrocities. I do think Zelensky is wrong on this. I don't think it's a question of turning a blind eye. I don't think any of the leaders he pinpointed, Arab or otherwise, who've given active or tacit support for Putin in the last 15 months, have turned a blind eye. I think they looked at the situation with perfectly <laughs> functioning eyes and decided, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll just let that slide. So it's not. I don't think it's a question of... Of blind eyeness. Is that a term? It is now. It's also a big swing to uh, accuse people of having turned a blind eye at a conference hosted by Mohammed bin Salman, a man <laughs> who turned a blind eye to himself ordering a journalist to be chopped <laughs> up and put in a bin. Like, it, uh, bin Salman, I mean, that guy turns like peak era Zinedine Zidane. <laughs> who, who he probably would would have would have signed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's possible. I mean, if if Zidane does at some point now become manager of Newcastle, we will listen back to this. <laughs> yeah. And, um... <laughs> yeah. I, I, think... I don't know about this because it's not Scottish football, <laughs> which I'm an avid, avid fan of. Uh, Zelensky told the. He told the uh, Arab League bigwigs that Ukraine was defending itself from, quote, colonizers and imperialists, and thus appeared to invoke the Arab world's own history of invasion and occupation. After all the support we and Britain have given Ukraine, and he starts slagging off colonizers and imperialists, that is ingratitude of the highest water. To Zelensky, well, you're going to have a go at the Beatles next. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just saying that Ringo songs not very good. <laughs> and after Paul was replaced with Cyborg, <laughs> he's downhill. <laughs> I'd like to apologize for that accent. That's what, that's when he knows he's given too many speeches. 
Once one of his Linsky starts going off about Ringo's output within the Beatles. That's when he and then you get material. a response from Ringo, like, peace and love. <laughs> love it. I'd like a summit between the two of them. The Zelensky star summit. Z- Zelensky star, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that. I mean, and you're excluding Paul McCartney from that. You, you don't want to get, you know, the other... Uh, Paul's busy. People. Right. <laughs> He's still touring. He's, yeah. well, maybe you could set him up to negotiate with Putin. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. We're come on. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Come on. We look, I love to hear your balalaikas rigging out. I've been very clear about my feelings about <laughs> Russian culture. <laughs> come on, keep your comrades warm. <laughs> uh, Zelensky also... Um... I've, I've now just bankrupted the bugle by quoting Beatles lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you mis you misspelled them, so it's fine. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> so it's about how it turns up in transcript. Um, the uh, <laughs> as evidenced by the fact that I I I stayed clear of mentioning his uh, back in the uh, USRS. Um, <laughs> uh, that's Zel- out of copyright now <laughs> since nineteen ninety. <laughs> Zelensky also um, uh, we had a very busy. Week. He attended the G seven meeting. In Japan, that's right, the G7, the spiritual home of the non-binding verbal agreement, was back in action uh, last week. The uh, leaders of the seven qualifying nations met in uh, the city of Hiroshima in Japan. Canada and USA, of course, qualify from the North American qualifying competition. Germany, France, UK and Italy from Europe. And Japan represented Asia, Africa, South America, Australasia, Antarctica and the rest of the universe. Plus, special wildcard guest stars the European Union, which is a non-enumerated member. <laughs> of the G7. I think my member was enumerated at eight days old from what I remember. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what that what function that that, that plays. But anyway, um it was uh, Are you calling the European <laughs> Union the discarded foreskin of the G seven? <laughs> <laughs> um but there was that, a lot of... that's somehow worse than anything Nigel Farage has said about the European Union. <laughs> the, um, uh, the the aim of the meet, the, the various uh, discussions at the meeting, including um, further clampdowns on Russia, and also aiming to reduce uh, the reliance on China uh, economically. And from a British perspective, uh, I would say that's quite simply achieved, would you not, to reduce our reliance on China? All we need to do is switch our manufacturing sector back on. Um, <laughs> if we can find the switch and mend the fuse and actually where did we leave them I think it's in the attic or did we or was it in the shed I'm mixing it up with the dehumidifier or perhaps we sold it on eBay but anyway look, we'll just we'll just sort it out uh, it, what were the highlights for you from the uh, the G7 uh, summit which uh, we've covered a lot of G7s on the, on the bugle <laughs> over the years and it's various forms I'm just really devastated that they're putting s- sanctions on diamonds right like for a long time I was like how does this war affect me and now it's <laughs> It's really biting. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> you were going to get diamond grills on your teeth, weren't you, Jess? <laughs> yeah, me me and Bear. It was that yeah. thing. <laughs> Why did my brain do that? <laughs> um, I think it's funny to describe China as a threat to economic security when that basically is just like, you're doing better than us and we don't like it. <laughs> like, I'm going to start like describing other comedians as a threat to my career security. 
Uh, I was thrilled to see uh, Italy there, obviously, because uh, it's always good at the G7 to have fringe, whack job, right wing conspiracy nutcases <laughs> represented. It's very important. It's been a it's been a couple of years since Trump, and now we've got Georgia Marley back on there representing the QAnon and borderline QAnon community. Um, Nish, have you forgotten uh, the UK there? <laughs> Oxfam. Uh- said uh, in advance of the, the summit that G7 countries are currently demanding around about $230 million a day in debt repayments from low- and middle-income countries. Because, and I think this is this is good, a lot of people say, oh, this is you know further, further evidence of the exploitation by the wealthy of the less wealthy. But we G7sters, we know the importance of sound financial management and of not getting yourself into unaffordable debt. And that message carries particular weight coming from countries such as the USA with its $31 trillion of debt (laughs) and the UK with our tidy little government debt, which currently runs at 100.2% of GDP. We know how these kind of things can skew and fracture your politics and and economy, and we will not let our low- and middle-income buddies make the same mistakes. So, I mean, it's. I think this is one of the greatest things that, 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 that the G7 are doing is dredging the last pennies from less fortunate countries for their own good it it does sort of suggest the fundamental problem with all of this in that you're not actually going to solve world problems if you don't invite people whose countries are being most directly affected by the problems in the world like it's like if uh, you it does suggest slightly an out-of-touch organisation, which is obviously not helped by the fact that their first priority on the sanctions was (laughs) diamond-based Britain News now, and the Home Secretary, uh, Suella Bradmore, to give her her full title, the baffingly appointed, then reappointed, and still in post Home Secretary, Suella (laughs) Bradmore, is once again in the news. This time, it's been alleged that Bradmore, having received a speeding ticket, which is not a big deal in the grand political scheme of political things, then our civil servants to sort out a private driving awareness course, rather than having to do a standard course with members of the voting public, according to the Times newspaper, which ran the story, officials refused the request to become involved in her personal affairs after taking advice from the Cabinet Office Propriety and Ethics team. Did she break the ministerial code? Is the question uh, that we seem to be hearing quite a lot uh, regarding leading politicians. Um, a government source denied she broke it. But it's unsurprising, is it not, that these allegations have been allegated this 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 idea of breaking the ministerial code because it seems that at the moment the government breaks the ministerial code as frequently as promises wind or the hearts of british democracy fans um i know you're both huge fans of uh suella bradman and have the tattoos to prove it this must have been difficult for you to see this uh this news this week i mean do i want her to be punished and resign yes it, why is it the curse of being engaged with politics, that you have to see these horrific moral vacuums going down for, like, a minor-ish <laughs> infraction of the rules. Like, did I want to see Ted Bundy punished for not finishing his law degree? <laughs> it, it, it's very hard to be, like, having to come out to support the, the team I love which is conservatives being humiliated and <laughs> brought to brought to justice, but it's like the team are only playing against mascots for a charity event. <laughs> it, I'm trying to do sports metaphors for you, but oh, no, 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 no. I, appre- well, I do appreciate that. 
joking. I know <laughs> that's not necessarily your natural MO. I appreciate the fact that you're doing that for me. For um, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a kind of bizarre and slightly sort of te- technical uh, thing, but a senior civil servant interviewed on the BBC said these actions are reported to be, quote, a real lapse of judgment, which at least, Nish, is a step forward from Bravman's normal lapses of judgment, which are pretend performative lapses of judgment, <laughs> which drive her policy. So, I mean, is this is this a sign that, that things are getting better? Well, it's I don't know if it's things getting better so much as it is absolute consistency, which we often castigate politicians for lacking. We often say they're inconsistent with their expression of their values. But breaking the ministerial code is the most consistent thing Suella Braverman has done. Uh, <laughs> it's her thing. It's her thing. She she was she had to leave the uh, the job that she currently holds. Uh, previously because she'd sent uh, an official document from her personal email, which is obviously a serious breach of a number of different laws and regulations. But then within six days, she was back in the same job after Rishi Sunak um, decided that it would be better to have somebody who'd just been sacked from the job in post for his own sort of personal ambition. Uh, one of the cabinet ministers uh, at the time gave it off the record briefing, which described her as a joke who shouldn't be anywhere near high office. Unfortunately, that is the job description of this current iteration <laughs> of the Conservative Party. It is very important <laughs> that you are a joke who ends up being nowhere near high office. I, it, there is an interesting sort of glut of stories about Braverman, uh, of which this is one. There's another one that's come out today saying that she tried to uh, skip a vote uh, on her, a migrants bill that she had kind of pushed forward so that she could do a photo opportunity at a police station. And the, the thing with all of this is there's a sense that she's pissed off a lot of the Conservative Party and she's done it most recently because last week she addressed uh, something called the National Conservatism Conference <laughs> uh, which was a, a conference that Labour MP Thungam Debonair uh, described as Conservatives Conspiracy Comic Con uh, <laughs> because she said uh, I love a bit of alliteration. Now I will say to you Thungam, if you love a bit of alliteration you've missed an absolute open goal there <laughs> because it was absolutely Comic Con for I cannot tell you what an open goal you've shanked. Oh, imagine her saying that on Politics Live. This was actually in Parliament, which would have been even better. It would have been even better if she'd called it Comic-Con for c***s. Yeah, it was a real uh, festival of the deranged. Uh, um, There were all sorts of uh, whack job theories put forward and all sorts of, I guess we could be generously calling them snafus, including the uh, journalist Douglas Murray uh, describing the First and Second World War as an instance of German nationalism having mucked up the <laughs> the the great muck Ooh. up. That, yes, that, that that's how I uh, that's how that in my synopsis for the film Schindler's List it begins with the phrase <laughs> "Well, Germany had mucked up, and now it was time for Big O to step up." <laughs> well, that's that's right up in the. I mean, the the, the pantheon of great British understatements <laughs> is a well packed. Um, pantheon. Um, that's that's right up there. I feel most let down by yeah. the fact that it was hosted at the Natural History Museum. You know, yeah. like they're inviting people who don't believe in the exhibits <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to speak underneath them. But I feel most let down by the staff on the day because all there's so many cupboards that they could have pushed them into <laughs> and locked them into. And in the long term, it would have been an attraction to visitors. Yeah. 
And I guess in some ways, you know, it's a good place to do a conference surrounded by physical metaphors for your political ideas. <laughs> um, and also for some of the some of the attendees, I think some of the exhibits were in their target demographic. Um, so, um, but the, the, on this this Braverman story, I mean, it, it doesn't. It's, it's by far from the it's, it's far from the worst thing that that she has done, and of yeah. all the the things that you know could bring bring her down. It's been described. It's it's been put forward as more evidence of a conspiracy to bring down. Braverman, which now involves you know, not just the left-wing cabal of secret wraith-like apparitions that have uh, been allegedly running the Conservative government since 2010, according to some newspapers, but also the speedometer on her car yeah. and her own poor judgment and some of her fellow Conservative MPs. Now, this was a story from uh, from April um, in uh, this year. William Ragg, a Conservative MP, uh, <laughs> tweeted this. This evening, having kept quiet for a while, I was struck by the lamentable hopelessness of the Home Secretary, remembering particularly her first week or so as an MP. My clearest recollection of our Home Secretary's legal acumen came from her first day. We had a presentation from the expenses watchdog, the IPSA. Her question concerned whether a speeding ticket incurred during the course of parliamentary duties could be claimed on expenses. <laughs> this out. woman then became... Attorney General, the, the leading f***ing lawyer in the country, and Home Secretary. Hell. So this is, this, this is the context of why people are just looking for anything to assist the process of helping the country. This is like on. when murderers do a murder, and the first thing they do is Google search how to get away with a murder. <laughs> <laughs> and they think to themselves, I'm a criminal mastermind, because yeah. I deleted it afterwards. <laughs> But I also think it's unfair to judge a Conservative because basically she just got confused between which of her servants she was addressing. <laughs> it's not her fault. She, if anything, they, they've given her too many servants. <laughs> How is she supposed to know they're not the House ones? <laughs> they're the civil ones. Uh, I mean, l last week... She was also in the news for uh, saying there was no good reason that Britain can't train up enough HGV drivers, butchers or fruit pickers um, in her efforts to uh, restrain net migration, which under uh, uh, her and her government's watch seems to be skyrocketing uh, in the aftermath of the Brexit that was voted in to bring it down. Um, uh, and so, of course, there's no good reason, but there are plenty of f***ing bad reasons, the same bad reasons we don't train up enough of any other useful job in this country, because we can't be asked, and it's f***ing cheaper not to. Um, it so, a good triathlon, though. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got to drive the HGV, cut the head off a pig, hold that while you shove it full of apples. <laughs> well, I'd watch it. Chris, uh, as a triathlete, uh, is that um, is that? I mean, because you know, it's it's an event that doesn't always get a huge huge audience. Would I mean, do you think involving a bit of um, pig slaughter and fruit stuffage would would help triathlon? Look, in, endurance sport, yeah, often brings you close to shitting yourself, and I think this only brings you that little bit closer. So it's all fine. <laughs> New York is sinking news now, and, well, this is bad news for uh, the Big Apple. New research, and sentences that begin, new research, never end well these days, <laughs> has shown that New York is sinking by up to 100 metres a year 
Uh, it's actually only one to two millimeters a year, but that is within the up to a hundred meter bracket. So um, again, let's let's talk it up. Why is New York <laughs> sinking? Uh, well, partly because it never sleeps, and poor sleeping patterns can really affect your overall uh, health. Um, but also, it's possibly because of the woke. But largely, it's because its skyscrapers are so heavy that the city is plummeting at breakneck speed towards the Earth's merciless molten core. And if it carries on sinking at the current rate of one to two millimetres a year, it will drill through the centre of the planet and emerge in the Indian Ocean about a thousand miles off the coast of Western Australia in just 640 million years' time. Um, this is obviously a huge concern for those who have um, long-term property leases in, in New York, <laughs> that um, they might end up in the Indian Ocean in well w well under a billion years from now but I mean, this is it's got to be a bit of a concern when your skyscrapers are, are sinking the entire city i i worry that there's no way to de-incentivize the building of them yeah because if i was building a very high building and somebody says to me well what's happening is this is sinking into the sea my first reaction would be build higher yes. <laughs> you you might as well say it's floating. We couldn't even say that. Because if, if somebody said to me, New York is beginning to float into the air, my immediate reaction would be, build higher. <laughs> <laughs> the researchers uh, size-shamed celebrity skyscrapers, including the Empire State Building, the new One World Trade Center, the Chrysler Building, and the Trump Tower, which actually weighs as much as all the other Manhattan cloud botherers combined, due to the inescapable gravitational mass of pure darkness within. But, I mean, Nish, this, this is a worry for all human, well, not just cities, but I mean, even, even villages. You think, you know, that the weight of a, of, a, of a house could, it seems, fracture the Earth's crust these days, because every, everyone is just so oversensitive, even the <laughs> planet Earth itself. I'll tell you who it's a huge, huge worry for. It's a huge, huge worry for the Ninja Turtles. Those right. guys already <laughs> live below ground in New York. So, I mean, they're already... They're, I'm, I'm concerned for sewage flooding. But, yeah, it's also... Is it possible that Manhattan can no longer house the offices of Fox News because the presenters have become so thick <laughs> trying to cause a drag on the entire landmass? <laughs> Is that have we considered that as a possibility right. that needs to be explored? Well, we have now. But yeah, it's their only hope because what they're doing is manufacturing so much hot air that eventually it will lift it up. They just right, so, won't be able to control the direction. So we're, we're going to have to somehow tether Manhattan Island. If it floats out to the Atlantic, I guess that's that's not so much of an issue. But if it floats inland, could land in New Jersey it would be absolute. <laughs> in Hindenburg all over again, wouldn't it? I'll tell you what, though, we'll be in for a hell of a Bruce Springsteen album. <laughs> <laughs> I just really like that the guy doing the um, research is a geophysicist, and he's got such a physicist's brain on it that he was like, um, if you get repeated exposure to seawater, you can corrode the steel and destabilise buildings, which you clearly don't want. And then there's an afterthought... Flooding also kills people, which is, I guess, <laughs> yeah, probably yeah, yeah. the greatest concern. <laughs> like, he doesn't care about that. He's not interested. Yeah. Old news now, and uh, more research has shown that humans, the celebrity species, uh, began romantically kissing each other four and a half thousand years ago, earlier than had previously uh, been thought. 
Uh, I mean, it does raise the question, uh, this, that what the f*** were they doing before that? I mean, were people just getting straight down to it? Um, you know, for all the many thousands and thousands of years of, of evolution that brought humanity to the point where the smooch was invented four and a half thousand years ago, was it just pure business? Also, what was the non-romantic kissing that was going on? <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> Previous canoodling experts have suggested that romantic kissing... Uh, spread uh, either from South Asia three and a half thousand years ago, or from France, uh, or from France around the same time that the shrug was invented, or just in the 1960s. But this new research has shown that Egyptians were smooching each other as early as two and a half thousand BC. And who can blame them with their golden beers and slinky sphinxware and their elaborate sarcophagi and their big pointy corpse holders? Oh yeah, uh, Mesopotamians were also at it. Something about being in between the big rivers Tigris and Euphrates, which, when looked at from space, do look alarmingly like a pair of seductive lips puckering up for a snog. But I mean, what what does this tell us about human civilization, Josie? That it took us so fucking long to get to uh, to to invent the snog. Well, I was just excited because they were able to update their knowledge because they found ancient Mesopotamian texts that said that a married woman had come close to being unfaithful after a kiss and an unmarried woman was vowing to avoid kissing and having sex. And um, that text was Grazia magazine. (laughs) Wow. I I guess that we also have to credit this as the invention of foreplay, because presumably if they weren't doing romantic kissing, they weren't, you know, warming up with some hand stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there might have been something completely different that we don't know about because it wasn't very good. My daughter, who is four, invented a thing with her friend where they pulled down their pants and ran at each other's buttocks backwards. Right. And they called it a bum high five. Right. You say invented, but you obviously haven't studied the history of British private schools and the <laughs> assorted sports that emerged therefrom in the 19th century, some of which became codified into the sports we know today, others of which sadly lost to history. Uh, that brings us to the end of this week's uh, Bugle. We hope you found it suitably illuminating and educational, as always. Um, so, Josie, tell us more about the long-awaited book. It's called Because I Don't Know What You Mean and What You Don't, and it's about a lot of overthinking, over-anxious characters and um, their short stories, and some of them are funny and some of them are very dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's something for everyone and you're... except for people who don't like my work <laughs> there's nothing for them yeah. I've actually read the book and I thought it was brilliant it's really really good there you go, as the official Nish Kumar seal of approval yeah that's, um... that's as official as it gets so once it's in the shops on is it the 25th? the 25th? oh thank still you still haven't got the date out uh, you're also also doing some live tour shows? I am, yeah. Please um, have a look at um, my Twitter and Instagram, at Josie Long, and you'll be able to see all the dates. There you go. Details on the internet. Uh, Nish, you have a new podcast. I have a news podcast. I'm now, news I'm now, podcast. Doing, I'm now doing Double Bubble on the news. <laughs> I'm doing the news podcast, and then I'm doing this show that makes fun of news shows. Right. Um, I'm doing, yeah, it's called Pod Save the UK and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also hear me on the news quiz, which is half-ish way through the current series. You can get that on BBC Sounds. Uh, thank you for listening. We will play you out now with more contributors to the Bugle Wall of Fame. If you want to join the Bugle Voluntary Subscription Scheme to keep the show free, flourishing and independent, go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the donate button. Our voluntary subscribers on the Wall of Fame this week have all developed computer simulations to find out what would happen if people and things from history did things that they didn't actually do, and vice versa. Drew Boning ran a computer simulation on large statues and discovered that if they came to life, the Colossus of Rhodes would ask the Statue of Liberty out on a date, but the Statue of Liberty would turn the Colossus down. Simon Cassell's computer simulation focused on what 15th century influencer Joan of Arc would have got up to if she had been around in the late 20th century. Perhaps due to a rogue algorithm, it suggested that Joan would have been a top 10 ranked tennis player who would have won the 1997 French Open, during which one of the commentators would have unwittingly said she was on fire. Derek Mead found that William Shakespeare, had he been around in the 1950s, would have written a mixture of film dramas about polar expeditions and Queen Victoria, advertising jingles for domestic goods and reports on football matches in the West Midlands. Similarly but differently, Sam Bergman found that if Taylor Swift had been Jonathan Swift and vice versa, 18th century music would have been considerably livelier and 21st century pop would have had more songs about eating babies. Nathan Clifford discovered that if 17th century painting star Artemisia Gentileschi had been a prehistoric cave painter, she'd have done pictures of bison. Really excellent ones though, but it was just the way people rolled in those days, artistically. For his part, Ian Horsey ran a computer sim on Cubism star Picasso to find out what he'd have churned out if he'd been an ancient Roman, which he obviously wasn't. The upshot of that was some computer-generated frescoes that, shall we say, were not suitable for work, plus a weird sculpture of Julius Caesar with three noses and a guitar. On the subject of the ancient world, Richard Perrin calculated that if Abraham Lincoln had been an ancient Athenian, not only would he have had a different taste in headwear, and probably been a little bit safer in theatres, but he would have spoken Greek and still made moving speeches about battles. Victoria Godfrey stuck 9th century algebra pioneer Al Khwarizmi through her version of this software, plopped him into the 19th century and found that he would in fact have invented the smartphone in 1867. And similarly, Rob Abram concluded that the internet would have been developed almost a thousand years early if only Bi Sheng, the Song Dynasty Chinese printing pioneer, had got a bit of venture capital funding to push his ideas on a little bit further and a little bit faster. Thank you to all our contributors to the Bugle Wall of Fame. Hi, it's producer Chris from the Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.